All right, so we are going to return to the Red Letter Study. This has been kind of an on-again, off-again experience, but we've got so many things in between, just lots of holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Easter, Pentecost, and so on and so forth. But I want to get back to it. And uh, I think I want to get into it this way, because I've gotten several questions just of late. You know, one of the wonderful things about the internet is, and, and about Zoom, because when we started this three years ago for the pandemic, you know, I didn't think I was going to like it. You know, I don't like change that much. Do you like change? Who likes change? Anyway, but I didn't think the technology was really going to work. And it's just, you know, it's been amazing how much the technology just disappears and it really becomes transparent in the, in the midst of the conversations we're having. But the other thing that it's done that I didn't anticipate is that it's brought so many people to us from not only out of state, but out of the country. And so at any given, uh, meeting that we have, sometimes up to half of the group is remote. I mean, they're out of the area. I mean, we're all remote, but out of the area. So it's really been wonderful to get to know people and to be able to extend um, what we're doing, because a lot of them will say, in my area, there's nothing like this. And so it's, it's been really good that way. But it's also brought some people who are now just in the process of making this transition from a more traditional um, way of looking at their faith into something that's approaching John's hair, right? So we're, we're, uh, they're in that, in that process right now. And so I've been getting some questions, and several people ask me the question. You know, they, they say, I'm embracing my faith more than I ever had, but I find myself kind of wavering, going back and forth, forward and back, and falling off, and, and, and feeling like I'm losing touch. And then I get it back, and I'm losing it. And is there something wrong with me? Is this a lack of faith? You know, what's going on? And I think that's such a, such a, a valid question and something that we all should be asking because I don't know any one of us in here, correct me if I'm wrong, who hasn't experienced that kind of oscillation, that kind of vacillation. I remember 30 years ago when I was getting on this, on this bucket, uh, I remember thinking of, of being at the beach as a small child with my mother who was sitting in the dry sand, and I would run from her lap out into the, into the surf line when the waves went out, right? And think that I'm all big and bad and brave until the wave starts coming in when I run back and jump into my mom's lap again. I remember feeling that exact kind of experience as I had moved forward in a new direction with my faith and then get scared and have to run back kind of like Peter stepping out of the boat and getting scared. So it is a, such a human trait. But what makes it worse or maybe hard for us to, to square is that Jesus' followers seem to just immediately embrace him. Jesus calls, they drop their nets, and they follow. And then they follow until the crucifixion when they have another test of their, of their mettle. But what's that all about? I mean, why were they able to just, because it was Jesus standing in the flesh in front of them? You know, I don't think so. I really don't think that God gives unfair advantages to anybody on the planet. I mean, we could all wish for a burning bush. We could all wish to walk beside Jesus. But I don't think it's any easier if you do. As we were saying earlier, the same things that beset us as humans here now in the 21st century have beset every single human who's ever lived. God is equal opportunity, but it's still difficult for us to seize that opportunity, to move into it. And so it looks like Jesus' followers immediately follow, but that's where I want to start today. Let's take a look at Mark 1, starting at verse 16. And this is the exact same story that you're going to find in Matthew 4, 18 to 20. So it's the same story, almost word for word. And so we're just going to read it once in Mark, but this happens immediately after 
the temptation in the wilderness. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He's tempted. He comes back into the Galilee. And at Mark 1.15, remember what he says? The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. He's preaching that all over. And then in the very next verse, as he was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Andrew the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. All right. So this is the first mention of Simon or Andrew's name in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. First mention, right out of the box. So we would assume then that this is also their first meeting, their first encounter together. Natural assumption. And so immediately, they're going to follow. Immediately, this guy walks up to them on the sand while they're washing their nets and says, follow me. And they drop everything and go, leave their livelihood, leave the tools of their trade, leave their families and just go. You know, Does that seem right to you? Is that something that you would do? Now, let's take a look at Luke 4, starting at verse 38. Then he, Jesus, got up and left the synagogue. Now, he's in Capernaum by now. He's left Nazareth, and he's moved over to Capernaum. He got up, left the synagogue, and entered Simon's home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. So in Luke, it's the same scenario. Right out of the wilderness, he comes. They, they just say that he is in the Galilee, and he's doing all kinds of healings and preachings. He ends up in Nazareth. We read that a few weeks ago. He gets rebuked there. They want to stone him or throw him off a cliff, and he runs back to Capernaum, which is his home base. And this is the first mention of Simon. And then he just walks into Simon's home after the first meeting. He just meets Simon on the street and walks into his home. That's what it sounds like to us because this is the first mention. But see, in ancient literature, there's this peculiar, compressed kind of storytelling that's going on here. And there's several reasons for that. Um, some scholars call it telescoping. That term is typically used with the generations. You know, the generations that, that Luke and Matthew give us. It sounds like those to our ears are all the generations between either Jesus and Adam or Jesus and David, but they've been telescoped. That is, that insignificant generations have been taken out so that the generations that are left come to very sacred numbers, usually 14 or multiples of seven, which is very important to the Jews. And so the same thing happens here, that details that don't add to the storyline are simply left out. They're telescoped down. Now, there was also a kind of an idiomatic way of telling stories in which people didn't repeat the things that were commonly known. And that gets us, too, because we don't understand what's going on in context. Because if everybody knew this thing, then why do we have to repeat it? It's kind of like saying, is it legal to drink in California uh, under the age of 21? And of course, well, drink what? You know, it's legal to drink water and Gatorade. You know, we all know that when you use that formulation, we're talking about alcohol. Everybody knows it. We don't mention it. It's the same sort of thing. So things that everybody knows aren't mentioned here. And the other thing is, is that these documents weren't documents at first. It was just an oral tradition. People just telling stories over and over again to each other. And so they knew the backstory. And when you write it down, writing materials were so precious 
you know? We didn't have a printing press. Everything was handwritten. And so they compressed everything down to the bare minimum and the bare amount of square inches it would take on a piece of parchment or papyrus in order to get the story down. So things are compressed. So what's not told are all the other meetings that must have happened before these that are recorded here. Now, who comes to our rescue but John? So if we look at John, chapter 1, starting at verse 35, we're going to hear a different kind of story. So listen to this one. And the next day, John, now this is John the Baptist. So he's starting back. You know, Jesus is still in the wilderness now and coming out of the wilderness, just out of the wilderness. And next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked along the River Jordan and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. Classic Jesus answer, right? He's never going to give you a straight answer. He's always going to goad you into action. Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak followed him, who followed him was Andrew. Okay, so now we know the identity of one of the followers of John was Andrew, and that's Simon's brother, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, that means brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, learning already, come and see. All right, so what we have here is a different kind of account, a true first encounter. So it's obvious if we put all of these together, and this is what scholars do between the four Gospels. In order to get the fullest account, they harmonize the four because each one has details the other one doesn't have typically, and they, they tell the story in a different way, give details that we need to fill in all the blanks. And so it's obvious here that John is telling us that there was a gradual process. The disciples didn't immediately follow Jesus, but they move from following John the Baptist to Jesus as they get to know what he's about. And they get to know him over time. That's a really important key. Now in Luke 4, we see the healing. Jesus goes to Simon's house. He already knows Simon. In fact, they're neighbors. Jesus' home is in Capernaum. Now, that might be striking to some of you because often it, we think that Jesus had no home. He was, uh, he was just a simple itinerant. But the scriptures tell us that he had his home in Capernaum. And people came over to his home to hear him speak and to fellowship with him that way. So his home was in Capernaum. I'm sure Mary was there and his brothers and sisters. Yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters too, you know. And yes, Aramaic doesn't have a word for cousin, so they could have been cousins, but most likely the simplest answer is they were brothers and sisters. So this was the family that Jesus was heading up because Joseph by then was probably gone, probably dead. 
And so this is Jesus' home. Simon has his home there. They're neighbors. They get to know each other. This is Jesus' base of operation throughout the Galilee as he's working. So sometime later then, after the events of John, we see Jesus going into Simon's home and healing his mother-in-law. They're getting to know each other, hanging out in each other's homes, talking and discussing. Man, wouldn't you like to be able to do that? Have a barbecue on Jesus' roof and just hang out for a while, get to know him? Wow. And so they're doing this. They're getting to know everything. They're drawn to him, but they don't immediately commit. I mean, would you do that? We just talked about that. If someone just came up, if you meet someone for the first time, would you just drop everything and follow? The disciples are intrigued by him, and they follow as much as they can. They hang out as much as they can, right? But they continue fishing. They continue doing their lives. They've got family responsibilities. They've got things they need to be about. So with time, though, and with the evidence mounting that Jesus is about something that is bigger than all of them, the pull is growing stronger. And I'm sure that Simon Peter was really confused about what to do, how to handle all this. Can you imagine that first conversation between Peter and his wife, you know, when he's starting to tell her where he's going with this? She's probably saying, you want to do what? <laughs> Are you crazy? What? I mean, could you imagine what that would be like? Simon is moving back and forth with this, you know? He's moving forward like that kid into the surf, and then he comes back, you know, doubting, wondering what's wrong with him, I'm sure, because he keeps wavering in all of this. What's wrong with me? Just like every one of us, there's no difference. Whether we're standing in front of Jesus incarnated here or whether we're here now 2,000 years later, the process is still the same. Faith isn't easier because it's an interior process. And we still have to go through the process of letting go of everything that we thought we knew and everything that we thought we were in order to embrace something wholly different than what we've imagined thus far. So what finally is going to put Simon Peter over the top? What's going to put the disciples over the top so that they finally just accept him. What's going to take them to those first passages that we read in Mark and Matthew to just completely drop their nets, forsake everything, and follow him? Let's take a look at Luke 5, starting right at verse 1. Now, this is only the next chapter after he goes into Simon's house and heals his mother-in-law. It happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that would be the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of the boats and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. 
But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left, forsaking everything, and followed him. So there is a line, forsaking everything, which can literally mean laying aside everything. They followed Jesus, but not all at once. It was a gradual process of becoming. Now, this is right here in Luke 5, Simon Peter's and the other disciples' moment of clarity. It's an epiphany, right? Now, there are many epiphany stories in the Bible, and Peter follows the pattern of all of them, even his own pattern. I don't know if you remember in uh, John 21, because we read this a little while ago, um, that post-resurrection story. It's very similar. They're out fishing. They haven't caught anything all night. They're just about to wrap it up in the morning, and they see this guy on the land. Right? This is when they're still not recognizing Jesus when they first see him post-resurrection. And the guy calls out, have you any fish? No, we don't. Thanks for reminding us. Why don't you put your nets out on the other side of the boat and you will catch some? <laughs> At your word, they do it, though, don't they? Even as ridiculous as it sounds, they haul in the nets and put them down the other side into the same water, and then they catch this great load of fish. And all of a sudden, it clicks with Peter. And he turns and realizes he's on the shore. And of course, Peter being Peter, jumps into the water and swims. He can't wait for the boat, right? He swims to the shore. And Jesus is there cooking breakfast. Love that image. Now, some scholars think that this is really the same story, just retold twice. I suppose that that could be possibly true. But I think more likely, it's symbolic of Peter's need to have a second breakthrough a second moment of clarity, a second epiphany to break through the doubt that had crept up after the crucifixion because they hadn't come to terms with the change that had happened pre and post crucifixion, pre and post resurrection. And so it's the same experience maybe twice, how Peter needed to break through again. And so we say, see the same situation occurring twice. And this is the pattern that is followed in all of these epiphany stories. Think about Exodus 3. This is Moses with the burning bush. Now Moses is uh, walking along with a flock of his father-in-law's sheep in Midian, in the back of beyond, and he sees a bush that is burning. Now that's not uncommon. There's creosote bushes in the desert that can self-combust and just burn. But as he looks at this thing, he realizes it's not consuming. It's still burning. And so he's like, I got to turn aside and see what's going on here. And then he has this conversation with God. And we think, man, this is great. Just walk along and see a burning bush. And all of a sudden, all my, all my questions are answered. But remember, this was after 40 years of Moses being in the back of beyond, in that desert, tending sheep in the wilderness. I love as some scholars say that over time, shepherds built what they call a shepherd consciousness. You spend that much time in silence and solitude, in stillness, in simplicity, the four S's of contemplation, 
and you develop a second sight. You develop a deeper way of seeing, a deeper way of perceiving. Moses was prepared to see what he saw in that bush. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a lifetime of preparation. In Judges 6, there's the story of Gideon. And some of you probably know that story where the uh, Israelites were being beset by the Midianites and they were really ravaging the land. And so finally, God calls Gideon at the threshing floor, which is really a wine press, and says, okay, you're going to raise an army and you're going to kick these guys out. And he says, how in the world am I going to do that? And so he sends an angel to him and he gets a sign. He asks for a sign and he gets it. And so he takes, after that sign, the first few steps to start gathering the army. But God says the army's too big and it needs to be smaller, smaller, smaller. He gets down to 300 men you know, against tens of thousands of the enemy. And he says, okay, that's the right army. Because now when you win, you will know that it was my power and not your own that did the job. But Gideon's still not sure. So he asks for another sign. And this is where he says, I'm going to put a fleece down on the floor of the, of the wine press. And then in the morning, I want the dew only to be on the fleece and everything else is dry. And so it's just as he expected. He says, well, can you do it one more time? Only this time make the fleece dry and the ground wet. See, it's a gradual process. And then, of course, you know, after that, he was able to go and do what he needed to do. But it's a gradual process. He had to be prepared in order to be able to throw, throw in fully, to completely abandon himself and immerse. In Isaiah 6, there's a story of Isaiah moving into this vision that he sees of God in the throne room with the cherubim and the seraphim around and so on and so forth. And God calls him to do something. And he says, no, I can't do it. I'm unclean. I can't speak for you. My lips are unclean. And one of the seraphim brings a live coal from the altar and touches his lips and says, okay, you're clean now. <laughs> Any more excuses? Basically, okay, here I am. I'll go. A process of preparation. Each one of them had an initial argument, why not? Moses had some sort of speech impediment. He couldn't speak for God, right? Gideon, he was just unsure. He was the youngest guy in the smallest family of Manasseh. He says, who am I to do anything spectacular like this? And then, of course, Isaiah says, I'm unclean. What does Peter say? I'm a sinful man. Go away from me. Do you see the parallels here? Every one of them needed to be prepared to be able to have the theophany, to have the experience, the divine connection. And then they still had doubts. And they had to argue with God. And they had to go through another process before they could finally commit. This is the shape of it. It's an ordinary human at a mundane, ordinary task of the work that they do during the day, right? But they are interiorly prepared. They're humble. They're quiet. They're still inside. They're prepared for more, but not yet ready. And then they have this display of divine presence. They're prepared for it. They're willing to see it. It's dramatic. It's miraculous. But the display itself is not the point of the story. It's not the miracle. It's not the theophany that is the point. It's the divine nature of the call on their lives that is the point. It's the hero's journey all over again. Having the, the, the curtain parted and you see a there there that you didn't know existed, or to have the world that was so foundational for you to be pulled out like a rug under your feet. 
and having to decide what do I do next. It's the call of the prophet. It's the call of the judge or the call of the apostle here that is the beginning of the hero's journey. And then there's that initial refusal. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. So Peter, as Moses, as Gideon, as Isaiah, profoundly, but over time, profoundly understand the moment that they're in. They understand what's going on here. They understand who it is that is speaking to them. And they're shaken and they're fearful because of it. And most importantly, they feel unworthy of the call, unworthy of the task that's being given to them. They feel unworthy of even the connection that they're having with God. But even so, they still answer. They still act. But it's in these tiny little ways, moving forward, moving back. Test here, test there. Testing the perimeter of the fence, kind of, you know. But they act. Now, I want to contrast that with the people of Nazareth, the ones that Jesus went to that we were reading and spent a couple weeks, three weeks, I think, on because there was so much there. Remember those people? They expected him to do in their town what he had been doing in Capernaum and other places in the Galilee. They, were in, they felt entitled to the healings because this is where Jesus grew up. Entitled to the healings, entitled to the miracles. They were people who were unprepared for the theophany, unprepared for the divine connection. Their minds and their hearts were closed, and when they didn't get what they wanted, they were angry and wanted to kill the messenger. Contrast Peter with the people on the shore who were listening to Jesus as he was in the boat preaching from Simon's boat. Now, these people were open. They were following Jesus. They were interested. But let's revisit the scene and see where the contrast really lies. Jesus is teaching the crowd, and the crowd is listening to Jesus. But Simon and the fishermen are acting, not just sitting and listening. Simon and the fishermen submit to the call. They respond, not passively, but actively. See, there are different levels of following. The crowd stays on the shore. The crowd stays in a place of safety. But Simon, Jesus says, put out a little way from the shore. Just a little way. Now, not much risk there. Maybe some risk, maybe some danger, not very much. But it's still something. It's not the shore anymore. Now you're in the water. Something can happen, right? And then after he's done, put out into deep water. That's the full immersion. That's the baptism. That's the next bridge. Because there are different levels of communication also. In Greek, and I want to stick with the Greek this morning instead of the Aramaic because I think it makes a stronger point. In the Greek, there are two different words for word. There's the one that we know, logos, right? The one from John 1.1 and so on and so forth. Logos means a constant or written word. It's the underlying reason beneath everything and all the propositions and the ideas that we have. But there is a second word also, and it's rhema. And you probably may have heard that word before, rhema. Not as well known. Now what the crowd is doing is they're listening to the logos. They're listening to this word intellectually as a proposition. It's passive, and no action is mentioned on their part. Peter says, upon your word, 
we're going to put out, even though we haven't caught any fish all night, upon your word, and that what is translated there is hrema, upon your word, or as we read today, as you say, say is rhema. So he hears rhema, which is a spoken word or a call. So rhema, as opposed to logos, right, is the action of uttering a thing that is said. It's the actual utterance, right? It's immediate. It's present. It's personal. It's spoken now. It's right now. It's in real time. It's the living voice of God. And it always requires a response. It's a call to action. Plato, the great philosopher, right, used rhema as the verb or the action that drives the logos or the proposition forward. That makes sense? You got the proposition, but it's the rhema that actually puts it into action. Okay? It's kind of like the proposition. Do you want to lose 15 pounds? Yes. The rhema is getting up in the morning and going to the gym and changing your diet. Okay? Proposition, action. Lagos, rhema. The crowd hears the proposition of Jesus' truth. And it sounds like they're favorably accepting it. Peter hears the call of Jesus' voice, put out to sea. And after his initial arguments, which are justified, right? He had worked all night. The nets were already washed. We're going to put them back into the water again, so we've got to wash them again. And besides that, maybe you fishermen know this, the fishing is best at night, at least in that region. And so now it's morning, and you want us to go back out and try again. So his arguments were justified. But upon your word, upon your rhema, upon your call, we will go. We will put out into the deeper water. And so like Moses, like Gideon, like Isaiah, the first reaction that I think any of us have, and they're just our models, right? The first reaction to pure presence of God, to the rhema, the word of God, is it acceptance? It's almost always disbelief. It's almost always doubt. It's almost always some form of resistance that we feel. There is an awareness of our own unacceptability. By our own standards, who, you, you talking to me? You know, there's that feeling. So there is always the first thing that we do is to set up walls to judge ourselves, to judge others. It's as if we're never good enough for the good news. And that's our first reaction when we have one of these moments. I wanted to read a few paragraphs from transcript of Brene Brown's talk. And if this is something you still haven't seen, I think it's been up for 10 years or something like that on TED, TED Talks. But it's called The Power of Vulnerability. And if you haven't seen it, look it up. She just does a brilliant job. But a few paragraphs, just to see if we can lock this in. She, in case you don't know who Brene Brown is, she's a you know, famous speaker and author now. But she started out as a sociologist and a researcher. And she spent 10 years researching people and you know, trying to figure out how they, they, they ticked on a basic level. And coming out of that is what this power of vulnerability, this was the result of that 10 years of work. And her books and everything have followed. She says, 
in this work, I started with connection. Because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is what it's all about. The ability to feel connected is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired. It's why we're here. Connection, right? So very quickly, <coughs> I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand and had never seen. And so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is. And it turned out to be shame. Shame. And shame is really uh, easily understood as the fear of disconnection. And that's really important. Shame understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? It's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection at all. No one wants to talk about it. And the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough, was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen really seen. Here's what I can tell you it boils down to. And this may, may be one of the most important things that I have ever learned in the decade of doing this research. What shame is, how it works. If I roughly took the people I interviewed and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness, that's what this comes down to, a sense of worthiness, who have a strong sense of loving and belonging, and folks who struggle for it. Folks who are always wondering if they're good enough. There was only one variable that separated them. People who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. The only thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection. And what do these people have in common? What they had in common was a sense of courage. These folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. Think about that for a second. Those who felt worthy of connection had the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others. Because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And as a result of this authenticity, they were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were. You absolutely have to do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. There's a line for the fridge. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first, the willingness to do something where there are no guarantees, the willingness to breathe through the waiting for the doctor to call you after your mammogram. They were willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. This is what I have found. 
to let ourselves be seen, deeply seen, vulnerably seen, to love with our whole hearts, even though there's no guarantee. And that's really hard. And I can tell you as a parent, that's excruciatingly difficult. To practice gratitude and joy in those moments of terror, when we're wondering, can I love you this much? Can I believe in this this passionately? Can I be this fierce about this? Just to be able to stop and instead of catastrophizing what might happen, to say, I'm just so grateful. Because to feel this vulnerable means I'm alive. And the last, which I think is probably the most important, is to believe that we're enough. Because when we work from a place that says, I'm enough, then we stop screaming and start listening. We're kinder and gentler to the people around us, and we're kinder and gentler to ourselves. See what she's saying here? This can be our rhema moment. Here's our rhema moment in everyday life, in all of our moments. This person in front of us right now, the person that's sitting next to you right now, is an opportunity for relationship. And what's that all about? Is it family? Is it job? Is it a love interest? Is it just passing someone in the street? Doesn't really matter. It's just whoever is in your path. That's an opportunity for relationship. Each person that you meet, each situation that you encounter is a call to put out or to stay put. What are you going to do? Are you going to put out to the deeper water where there's risk, right? Are you willing to take that chance of entering into something where there's no guarantee? Or are you going to stay on the shore where it's safe? where you can continue to think about all the propositions that float about in your brain and tell you the things that are keeping you in place on the shore. Because we can't respond to this rhema. We can't respond to this divine call until we're willing to let go of everything we think we should be and just let ourselves be what we are. Find that humility. That's the definition of humility anyway. It's just to understand your relationship with yourself and with others and with the divine, with the significant. That's it. It's just to understand those relationships truly and not imagine them to be anything else, not to cast judgment on anything else. Because until we have the courage to be imperfectly who we are, and to realize that we're going to doubt, realize that we're going to waver, realize that we're going to go back and forth and all these different things that we're beating ourselves up for as a lack of faith, but it's just who we are as human beings. And everybody from Moses to Peter encountered and experienced the same thing, and God understands. Until we have the courage to be imperfect, until we believe that we're worthy of this call to deeper water, this call to connection, this call to acceptance and love, until we fully embrace vulnerability and let ourselves be seen, really seen as we are, let our walls down, then we're not going to be able to move into this deeper water. We're still loved. Nothing's changed there. But we won't experience that love as Jesus would love us to experience it. And so what is Jesus always saying? Well, here he says, don't be afraid. But you know that construction in the Greek is what they call a present imperative. 
And so what it really means is don't continue to be afraid, which is actually a little bit more on point, isn't it? So to Moses, Isaiah, Gideon, Peter, every one of the disciples, all of us, you and me, don't continue to be afraid. Don't worry about your vulnerability. Because if you will press through the vulnerability, you will experience a love that you couldn't imagine was as degreeless and as perfect as it is. And perfect love casts out fear. So if we're willing to press through our resistance and press through our fear and take those first few steps and get reinforced that the next step is possible and doable, and the next one after that, and the one after that, we eventually encounter this love that casts out the fear. This is it. And then he says, from now on, you're not going to be catching fish. You're going to be catching men. And the word there in the Greek is sogreo. Zogreo. And it means to catch alive. It means to take prisoner. So you're catching something, but you're keeping it alive. And so the idea is, from now on, you will be catching alive people that you will be reviving, restoring to life restoring to strength. This is the whole point of this catching of the men, catching of the people, but it's also catching ourselves. We can't catch anyone else alive until we catch ourselves alive. What do we usually say? We usually say that someone is, right, captured or captivated by love, right? That's good. That's it. We're captured alive by love. And what does John 3.16 tell us? But if we will do this, if we will continue in this, if we will move in this direction, then we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. And eternal life there, back to the Aramaic, is Hayed Alma, which doesn't mean life that goes on and on and on and on forever, as we typically think of eternal, but it means life that is eternally new and fresh and diverse, always presenting some new facet of itself. It's always alive. It's never boring. It never ends or runs out of that strength and that vitality. That's life that is always refreshed. That's life that is eternal. And when we embrace the vulnerability, when we put out into deep water, we're going to find that connection. We're going to find that unity. We're going to find that life that is always and eternally new, refreshed, and captivating. That's it. That's what we're after. So if you are feeling a little bit unsure, if you're feeling like you're wavering, if you're feeling like your faith shouldn't be stronger, it is possible that you're still listening primarily to the Lagos It's possible that you're still listening to the propositional truth. You're still holding it in your intellect. And your mind jumps all over the place. Every single one of ours does. And so that's not a real stable place to be. Did you know that your mind is not a good neighborhood? So if you are still listening primarily with your mind to the logos and the propositional truth, then yes, of course you're going to experience that. But what the Lagos allows us to do, what finally capturing 
That propositional truth allows us to do is to take the first step, to put out a little way into the water if we're starting to hear that call and take the first steps repeatedly toward the rhema, which will put us out to deep water. That's what the contemplative experience is all about. Putting ourselves out into deeper and deeper water, taking out more and more of the logos of the intellect so that we can just experience in real time the voice of the living God, the living voice of God, the rhema that is that call that will finally show us and put us over the top that we can trust this love that has no degree and that we can live our lives without continuing to fear. That's the freedom that Jesus is trying to give us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not whitewashing your word, showing all these characters of faith exactly as they were in all of their vulnerabilities and all of their failings so that we can know that we fit right in, that we are a part of this human race and not some sort of outlier, that we are going to experience the same thing, and it's okay. It's not only okay, but it's necessary. Help us more and more just to realize this is a gradual process. There's no time limit. We can keep stepping your way more and more. Help us to get comfortable in the process and stop looking at the outcome, but just enjoy the ride. If we can do that, Father, we're much further in your camp, in your presence. And that's what we want. We want to be in your presence, Father. So continue to guide us and help us. Continue to allay our fears and give us the strength and the desire to continue to risk what we need to risk and show what we need to show so that we can become more and more transparent to you and to everyone around us. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us first. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.